Hi, I'm Helen Avery and you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. This week, I'll be talking to Cathy Baumer-McLeod, director of the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Centre, about why resilience matters, the silent killer that is heat, and the role of insurance and finance in helping us be better prepared. Heat is killing more people in, in the United States than any other climate-driven hazard. It's quiet. It's not dramatic like a flood or a hurricane. You know, it doesn't rip the roof off of your house. And it's pervasive. It's a stress and a shock. A very warm welcome, Kathy. It's lovely to have you here. Um, how are you, by the way? Very well. Very glad to be here. Thank you, Helen. So I thought we'd... Um, start and as we often do by just sort of getting a bit of background on you getting to know you a bit better and um, you've had such an interesting career you were global environmental and social risk executive at Bank of America before that you were managing director of climate risk and resilience at the Nature Conservancy and also before that energy and climate commissioner of the state of Florida um, government so kind of incredible so NGO government finance. Can you tell us a bit about that journey and then how that led up to you um, ending up at the center? Well, um, I started out in um, conservation at an American conservation organization called the Trust for Public Land. And I loved their mission was land for people. And then uh, I went and worked for one of the land conservation organizations in the state of Florida. And a a former banker, a, a woman named Alex Sink, ran for chief financial officer in, um, in the state of Florida. And so I got a stellar education in public finance, in um, institutional investment, in risk management. And that's where I fell in love with insurance, which is, I know, funny, but... <laughs> right. Not many people say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I, I you know, as a tool, as, a, as an approach, as a way to solve uh, big problems like climate change. And so Florida with 2,500 miles of exposed coast and financially and physically exposed to climate change, um, we uh, were the first treasury to disclose climate risk in a public entity in the U.S. at the state level. And um, so I got a taste for the the risk and finance and the combination. Um, And then as things go, politically, big change, and my boss ended up running for governor. And losing by a very narrow margin. And it was time to change the channel, as they say. And I went to the Fuqua Business School at Duke University and got um, a global MBA there and moved to Washington, D.C. and came to work for the Nature Conservancy. Um, After um, five years, I was lured to the Bank of America for um, what was interesting to be doing that same kind of work, you know, the same, it's climate risk disclosure. So I, you know, led the first task force for climate related financial disclosure report and, and then was, was uh, recruited to come to the Atlantic Council to run the Adrian Arsh Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center. And so that's my story. It's like all of the jobs coming together in one place um, for this center. Oh, it's fantastic. In fact, can you tell us a bit about the center and what it does for those who, who might not know listening? The center is um, focused on resilience for people facing challenges of climate impacts, migration, and um, we call them security, human security challenges, but they are you know, food security, health, um, water security, and they're all related 
and now as we see stacking up, these crises are on, you know, you can't take them on one at a time. They're all happening at one time and COVID has just accelerated all of it. Um, and so we have set a goal of reaching 1 billion people with resilient solutions to those challenges, climate migration and human security by 2030 in alignment with the global goals. And the center sits as um, one of um, 14 centers at the Atlantic Council, which is a 60-year-old foreign policy organization with a global reach, with its roots in the post-World uh, War II era of keeping allies together. And it's, it is um, based in a belief in uh, democratic institutions, rules-based order, and keeping the world um, in a multilateral good relationships and often acts as the soft power of the of the US through through thick and thin. And it's been really interesting to have a, a small nonprofit like the Resilience Center functioning against the backdrop of this global policy, <clears throat> excuse me, organization and um, using it to leverage uh, relationships and reach and that sort of thing. And we are um, in part of a legacy program of the 100 Resilient Cities um, initiative that was um, sunsetted in 2019. And so um, that's us, we're spread around the country, but we have um, team members in Chennai, India, in Athens, and then a small team in Miami. I guess the first question is you know, about resilience. Um, do you feel like it's a topic that we're talking enough about, um, particularly as a sort of financial community? Maybe we've been looking you know, a, lot, a lot around mitigation, um, do you feel like there has been a gap? And I just wonder if you thought that maybe a change since the pandemic broke out, maybe we saw sort of the fragility and the, and the need for resilience in real time. Well, I feel like if we had a nickel for every time I read or heard the word resilience since <laughs> the pandemic started, I wouldn't need to be raising any money for our work. <laughs> I'll, I'll say in our definition, we say that you are uh, made more resilient um, when you are better prepared for withstanding and recovering from shocks and stresses. And we define those shocks and stresses as climate migration and human security. We've tried to be quite specific about what we mean by it, but I, I think it's good and bad. We see the use of it and the awareness of it almost as a personal trait. You know, are you resilient? Do you have grit? Are you, um, are you able to take all the we're being offered right now, economic impacts of COVID, health crises, um, natural disasters, food insecurity. Um, you know, I could go on, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to be too depressing. <laughs> yes, we all, we all see the statistics. Um, so yeah, I would say, and, and also just a note on climate adaptation and climate resilience mm. and the relationship between those two words. And I think there's, we could have a separate podcast just on that. You know, what does the Venn diagram look like for the word climate resilience and the word climate adaptation? And so I don't think we need to go deeply into it, but there, that's an interesting conversation because they're not exactly the same, I would say. Oh, you can't just leave us there. <laughs> well, <laughs> next question. I um, so I would say that I think of resilience as a human trait. You know, and we define you as resilient in our one billion person goal. If we can uh, prove, show that you have um, new skills, new knowledge, or a layer of protection over you that helps you better prepare for, withstand, and recover from these shocks and stresses. But I think the difference between adaptation and resilience is adaptation is is tactical. The water will rise X, and you need to 
either move back mm. or put yourself on stilts or um, use sandbags or uh, restore the coastal wetland. You know, these are tactical things you do to adapt to a threat or to a hazard. And I think resilience is a blend of both. Mm, I love that. I have not heard that description before. And it's um, it's really, really helpful in sort of clarifying what you asked. So thank you. So before we sort of just go on to talking about um, some of those challenges that the centre's focused on, uh, one in particular that we're going to talk about is heat. I just wondered, you know, it'd be remiss if we didn't mention that um, uh, President, uh, US President Joe Biden held his climate summit very recently. Um, and so I just wondered, you know, did you did you feel an urgency for resiliency coming through at all in that summit? I think the urgency that came through in the summit is the need for global action to cut emissions. Mm. And if you saw the International Energy Agency's report that came out last week, it said that we are about to have the biggest increase in emissions in the last decade and that the economic recovery from COVID means a huge increase in emissions and that coal, the demand for coal in Asia is one of the biggest drivers. And so while I absolutely understand that that is the way we have, we have to solve this, um, we're not solving it. And that report tells us we are nowhere. I feel like there is a delicacy to saying we're not getting there because we can't give up. We can't, we can't say we can't do it. And of course, climate change is disproportionately hurting people that are poor, that are vulnerable, people that are black and brown. I mean, this is not an equal um, distribution of impacts. And the countries that are emitting the most have a responsibility to those countries that are experiencing it and really did little to cause it. And so the focus on emissions, I totally get it, but we are seeing, it's not, it's not a future risk. It's not something we're, you know, we're thinking about and writing about. I mean, we're, we're responding to it and in cities and counties and local governments all over the world, people in emergency management have been deployed to COVID response. And so that leaves emergency management short of capacity. And then we have floods and fires and extreme heat and, you know, all of the things that we're facing and lots of food insecurity. And so I would argue we did, I did not hear a passionate cry for adaptation. Now there was definitely, there were definitely some positive signs and there was a session where a commitment of tripling the public finance for adaptation in um, developing countries that commitment was made, which is fantastic. And that uh, is really important. And there was an, a, a side event or a session on nature-based solutions, which is also important. Nature is most often the most cost-effective adaptation strategy. Um, that being tree canopy that cools a city and absorbs pollution and cleans the water. Um, they also store carbon. So, you know, they're like uh, nature is the superhero for climate change. It's true. And coastal wetlands, buffer storms, they're quantified. You can, you know, you can quantify how much loss is avoided by um, ability to break waves of a coastal wetland. Those are mangroves and, you know, salt marshes and things like that. And then forests are just super, super for 
um, all kinds of good things and good for health and good for water and good for cooling and for food and all that sort of stuff. And so that is important that they talked about the nature-based solutions and increasing them. But I have to say, I, I didn't hear the equal cry, which is what we are, um, we, the Resilience Center, we are saying we need climate action parity. We need to be doing both with equal vigor. And we'll be uh, pushing for that and 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 showing how how to do it, where to where to mobilize capital and which projects have evidence base, what kind of interventions have evidence and that sort of thing. So we'll be putting our shoulder to the wheel. Yeah, I, I, want, I mean, and it's it's for another podcast, really, but just this whole sort of human behavior and this sort of need to have hope. And so just moving from a shift to adaptation rather than mitigation might feel kind of... Uh, scary I suppose a sort of acceptance I think that's exactly right how how could we do that and I don't think we can but we have to yeah. we have to equally emphasize um adaptation and resilience we just have to and it's an economic imperative also I mean livelihoods are lost wages are lost there's there's lots to talk about here yeah well let's talk about specifically heat because um I know there are sort of many challenges that you're taking on at the center but this one is is sort of a real focus um at the moment so can you just sort of share with us the extent of the of the heat challenge so heat is it's the silent killer. It's killing more people in, in the United States than any other climate-driven hazard. It's quiet. It's not dramatic like a flood or a hurricane. You know, it doesn't rip the roof off of your house. And it's pervasive. It's a stress and a shock. So it's, you know, slow increase in temperatures. And the uh, nighttime temperatures are not dropping. And the human body rests and cools at night. And when uh, those temperatures don't fall... Um, you have more stress. It is also uh, something that people aren't fully aware of, and they're not aware of their own vulnerability. And so, you know, you see all kinds of impacts, health impacts, but also schools shut down because kids, it's too hot to sit in the classroom. Um, people come into the hospital and they have renal failure, you know, kidney failure, and it's not recorded as heat, it's recorded as kidney failure. And so we don't really have the data of how many people get sick from heat. And then we also see that it um, stops transportation. So airplanes can't fly when it's too hot. In Phoenix, there are so many days every year when the airport is shut down because the aerodynamics of flight don't work because the air is too hot. Wow. Um, not just planes, but um, the underground in London um, mm. was the tube was shut down. I think it was last summer and the summer before because the the rail and the tire, you know, of the train. Um, started to melt <laughs> and it was unsafe that the um, the train was going to leave the track. And so it's it, we have these um, signs of it and of course disproportionately impacting vulnerable communities and people of color. And so it's the sleeper risk and I think um, you know I'm gonna go out on a limb. it's not far of a, uh, that far of a limb to say I think this is going to be the number one financial risk um, of climate change and heat is the it's the mothership of climate risk. It's driving what we're seeing. And I think there's some irony in the fact that we've been talking about global warming for decades and decades, and yet we're not talking about heat. And um, you may have seen that um, Abram Lustgarden did a piece. He's at ProPublica, um, and they partnered with the New York Times, and they looked at human migration that's driven by climate um, and their, you know, team of um, analysts, I think it's the Climate Lab who did the analytics, um, said that 
of the earth will be uninhabitable, where maybe three is right now. And I think it was 20, 2060 or 2070. And so, wow. Okay. What does that mean? Who, it means mm-hmm. that when you, you know, our skin, um, cools itself by sweating and the air absorbs the sweat. But if the air is as saturated and hot as your body and the sweat, you suffocate in your own skin. And so we, we can't live there. I mean, even if you have air conditioning, um, you, you can't live. And so we're not prepared to solve those problems. So let me say as a center, we're not talking right now about how we think about that 19%. And, and a lot of that is about sub-Saharan Africa, where people go we're we're really saying okay right now we have heat waves and last year is the hottest year ever um europe's 2020 was the hottest ever the uk lost 2600 lives to heat mm-hmm. um excess death is the main main way to measure it at this point because we don't have great data collection um and so um the uk has a new had a new health heat health warning system and um it it failed and 2,600 people died and that's the UK. <laughs> so think, right. you know, it's number one killer in the U S and so um, we, we think and have spent the last year and a half really studying why is it the silent killer and how do you solve a problem if it's silent? And so we've convened leaders from all and organizations from all different sectors and launched the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance. And, you know, it has the Rockefeller Foundation and Bechtel and Swiss Re, the Insurance um, Development Forum, and the elected insurance commissioner of the state of California, the city of Chennai, city of Athens, Greece, Miami, Paris, Melbourne. Um, we've just started to work with Freetown, Sierra Leone. And so finding cities and bring cities and practitioners. We've got the Red Cross and the Red Cross Climate Center. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm happy to share more, but the point is, how do we solve this? And the first thing is we've got to educate people about it. And so we, we believe that naming and ranking heat waves is one of the clearest ways to bring the attention that we need to, to heat. So, so there's quite some really exciting news out today, I believe, on this um, work that you've been doing. Absolutely. So as a part of the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance, um, we are launching the uh, City Champions for Heat Action, which is an initiative of the Alliance, which brings um, climate leaders, uh, people, you know, mayors already as climate leaders to lead specifically on heat. And today, Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava announced the world's first chief heat officer, Miami-Dade County and Resilient 305, which is a partnership between the city of Miami, the city of Miami Beach and Miami-Dade County, they will appoint or they have appointed a chief heat officer. And that comes with a task force that looks at the existing programs. How do they accelerate, expand, and coordinate existing heat um, efforts uh, particularly for vulnerable people. And if you are in Miami, you know, hurricane risk is one of the most, you know, the risks front of mind, but heat exacerbates that. And so you've got flood risk, you've got sea level rise, you've got hurricanes, and you've got heat on top of it. And so it's so exciting to see that governments will have people that wake up every day and focus on 
how can we address this, reduce the risks, reduce the impacts, share what can be done, and collaborate with cities around the world um, and the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance for uh, those things that you can do to, to better understand it and to reduce it to protect people and you know save lives and, and jobs. That's brilliant. Well, congratulations on that work then. Thank so you. Our first, our first Chief Heat Officer... Um, are we expecting other cities to follow suit? We are. So we also have um, uh, Mayor Yvonne Aki-Sawyer from Freetown, Sierra Leone. She has joined the City Champions for Heat Action. And uh, Mayor Kostas Bakoyanis from the city of Athens, Greece, he's also mm-hmm. joined. So we've got three mayors that are uh, the vanguard leading the way. And we're also launching the kickoff of heat season. And so hurricane seasons exist. We have fire seasons we want a heat season to raise awareness. And so we've got um, a big campaign view, but it's hashtag heat season and uh, be on the lookouts for some beautiful, I'll say, uh, digital images. And so I hope that it, it passes into your Twitter and into your LinkedIn because yeah. we really want to brand heat season for, you know, people need to understand and, and then what to do about it, which is also part of the campaign, how to yeah. protect yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, I was sort of sharing with you this week. It's It's actually the the coldest April in the UK, it's like 30 years. So it's just not at the top of people's minds. But then you hear those yeah. figures that you shared about the number of deaths last year from heat. And, um, you know, as, as you know, I have lived here in a long time, but what I always notice when I come back here is how ill-prepared um, Britain is for heat when it gets it, which it invariably does now, even if it's just a couple of weeks a year compared to, you know, in the States, it's AC everywhere and the same in Asia. Um, so it's not, it's, you know, it's, I'm just sort of thinking about people saying heat season's going to start. Hooray. You know, cause that's what people think when you right, let's a, go to the beach cooler climate. Yeah. But, um, but it's a real, real danger, as you say. And it's a slow, it, it can be a slow onset kind of illness too. You might, you don't recognize it as heat. You know, you don't feel good. Um, you feel nauseous and you, know, you have a headache and you know, that's, that's heat stroke or, you know, heat sickness. And the other thing that you just said is so true is that places cities, countries that are not accustomed to heat are the least prepared to uh, handle it because the buildings are not air conditioned. Streets and surfaces are absorbing heat and then releasing it uh, at night. You have the urban heat island effect where, you know, cities are are even hotter because of the infrastructure in the city. And so there are big movements to change over those surfaces and have lighter surfaces and reflective surfaces and, of course, more trees. And so you've seen the um, Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, is pulling out the um, stone or granite um, surface of the city hall and foresting it. So there'll be a, you know, it'll be a forest in front of city hall to try to cool the city. And they have a, a heat plan. And so I anticipate that London and the UK will have a heat plan soon, too, because um, you can't lose 2,500 people every summer. That's just, yeah. that's not sustainable. And the, part of it is too, that it's the people who are dying are alone for the most part, alone in apartments that are on air conditioned or, you know, in their, in their homes. Um, and elderly people are the most vulnerable group. And so people aren't checking on them. And so that's part of what we also advocate is, you know, check on your grandparents, check on your, check on your parents who are, and your neighbors who are by themselves in the summer. Yeah. 
So before we go on to talking about how we might finance for some of these um, solutions like uh, rooftop gardens, reflective pavements, I just wanted to come back to your point on naming the heat waves. That's really important. I didn't want to wash over it. So just sort of tell us what that will do. And just out of interest, how are they going to be named? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, I'll start by saying it's been really effective for naming hurricanes. And we want to build the same culture of preparedness and awareness and prevention that uh, has been done um, with hurricanes, cyclones, et cetera. And so, um, but there's a difference, you know, a, a hurricane is a wind speed. When it hits X wind speed, it gets called a tropical storm. And then when it gets to X, you know, it's a her, you know, it's a level one or a, a, a category one or two or three. So heat's about the human body in part, and it's about an air mass. And so we are working with um, a group of climatologists and scientists and human behavior specialists, behavioral economists to um, craft the methodology for um, first the climatological methodology of how um, you determine that this air mass is needs to be you know categorized as a one and gets a name. Um, how and that's about how long it is, a certain temperature and humidity. Um, but you also have to think about the the people that are experiencing the heat. And so a heat wave in London feels different than a heat wave in Athens, Greece. You are not accustomed to, I, I'm going to use Fahrenheit, but like 100 degrees, 105. Um, your buildings aren't accustomed to it. Your clothes aren't really accustomed to that. And so it's a different, it's going to be a different approach or same framework, but different use of or trigger for London versus Athens. And so we're designing that now. And we believe this is the way to do it because it triggers a change in your behavior. And that's what we're trying to do. Get you ready. And the retail nature of it, the hashtag, the name, the media, we think it's got, uh, it's got a uh, real promise to help save lives and, and get people prepared. Absolutely. Yeah. And just increasing awareness and having people get prepared, which is all about sort of what resilience is sort of get, getting yourself ready. <laughs> Right. And we see this as a gateway for all of these interventions, which I know we're about to talk about. Some of them are financial, um, but all kinds of interventions, changing the pavements, as you said, changing the surfaces, um, different ways to um, cool people. Uh, and let's let's talk about the finance uh, yeah. aspect if you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, what are you seeing in terms of the financial solutions or investments in this area? You know, obviously can't just rely on public sector for, for everything, as we know. Right. Right. Well, I think one of the things to note is that there's a dearth of data, not just in the health side, but on the financial side. We don't really know what it costs to have a heat wave. What does it cost to get ready for one? What does it cost to, to recover from one? Um, so there's some data that needs to be collected. But what we're focused on is a combination of access to capital for investing in those long-term heat-reducing interventions. So urban forests and surface changeover and um, early warning systems and technology and that sort of thing. But on the short term, we're looking at some risk transfer approaches, you know, some insurance approaches that are based on a forecast. And so just for a quick example, you know, we want money beforehand, not after, because after is when things are, uh, you know, people have died and things are ruined. And if you can get money before to get ready, that's a, you know, move the money up in the chain. And so there's a um, great example of a program that Swiss Re and the Kenyan government put together called CLIP. It's called the Kenyan Livestock Insurance Program. And the, the uh, farmers were, ha they had insurance. They had 
their own insurance policies. But the trigger was when, and these policies are called parametrics. So when an event happens is when you get paid. It's different from having the damage and then somebody come and assess the cost of it. And that takes a lot of time. So the farmer would get paid after he or she sent a photo of the dead cattle. And so they, they thought there's, this must be a better way. I mean, the loss, the trauma, can't we get help beforehand? So they changed to using remote sensing to assess the vegetation and its level of hydration. And when the hydration dropped to a certain level that was threatening, money would drop to the farmer to their phone, and then they could get water, food, et cetera, and save the cattle. And wow. so we want to use the same idea on heat. And so we want a forecast-based trigger on an insurance product that would drop money into the treasury of a, of a city or community that would deploy urban search and rescue to go door to door, to bring um, cooling stations, generators, um, more um, communications to the community, whatever relief they would need, water in advance, that sort of thing. And so um, we have a, a risk and finance working group co-chaired by um, two fabulous people, um, Sophie Evans from the Center for Disaster Protection in London and Vikram Widge, the former head of climate finance at IFC um, here in DC. And so looking across at finance and risk tools. And so it's there's a lot of promise and some great examples. The, the Red Cross Climate Center has innovated all sorts of forecast-based relief and forecast-based financing. And there's a lot, a lot of good stuff. And I, I we're onto a good path here. Um, presumably, it's cheaper for the insurance company to pay for the food and water for the cattle than it is to replace a dead cow. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. There's lots of money sloshing around in the world. And I've been on all sorts of um, programs and webinars lately talking about you know, how do we move money into the right places as we see the, you know, the climate crisis advancing. And most experts in finance and particularly climate finance are saying this is not a money problem. It's a, it's a project problem. And so part of this emphasis, we talk so much about the money. It's really the stakeholder environment that enables for money to be delivered in the, in the right ways, mm -hmm. because it's not just about investing in infrastructure. There's, there's human infrastructure, there's natural infrastructure, there's, you know, hard gray infrastructure of bridges and roads and all that. And so the idea is that we need project preparation facilities um, to be expanded and we need community and stakeholder engagement for that last mile, as they say. Um, we're going to be focused on, on both, but um, I'm excited by what we're seeing in terms of the interest from the cities. And so um, stay tuned. Some exciting things are afoot. Yeah. And I, I would think, you know, there's a, the means to sort of use public sector to crowd in the private capital at some point, you know, whether you know, some of these cities will have green banks, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I and I think on the on the financing piece, there's some aggregation to be achieved. And partly that's why we want to keep cities together, you know, and we work closely with the Resilient mm -hmm. Cities Network, um, which is a sister organization. Again, we're focused in where people are. We're trying to reach a billion people. So we're going to focus on where um, you know, where the people are. And we think that if we can aggregate um, finance, and there may be an existing facility where this sits, and we're also working with the Caribbean Catastrophic Risk ins and Insurance Facility um, that's a risk pool. 
and could put risk and finance together. And so if you think about that chain of, you know, you have a risk and quantify the risk and we have a cost benefit analysis tool that we're developing that looks at the impacts of climate change and the avoided loss of certain interventions for adaptation. But um, it's called the economics of climate adaptation. But the the point is that we have uh, taken biodiversity and gender and social vulnerability to fold into the output that is a cost curve that tells you which is the best intervention. And so normally those are just economic figures, but this one will tell you you're helping or hurting the environment. This is how the, the outcome is different for men and women and where are your vulnerable communities. And so make sure that, you know, you think you're helping, but you're not. And so it's a more informed tool and it'll be open source where it's in beta version right now. But my my point is that looking at finance and risk, this chain of, you know, we have a risk, we quantify the risk, we identify what will reduce the risk, you find money to invest in those risk reduction strategies, and you have risk left over that you can't hold yourself and own, you transfer that risk and then start over again. It's, there is hope. (laughs) There is hope. You're making me fall in love with insurance. Who wouldn't? (laughs) It's so great. <laughs> it is. Uh, it solves so many problems. Yes, oh, exactly. <laughs> oh, I wish I wish we had longer to go. There's so much um, we could talk about. I'm, I'm so grateful for you for joining us today to share about this. Um, so thank you, Kathy. And before you go, we have a few questions that we'd like to ask everyone if you're up okay. for it. Yep. <laughs> um, so you know, given everything we've talked we've talked about just now, what what's the one thing you think we're we're really not looking at or talking enough about when it comes to sort of you know, um, issues around climate change and environmental risk? I we're not talking enough about nature mm-hmm. and the role of nature, and it is still an externality. And in all of our retirement portfolios, for those of us lucky enough to have them, there's a return, and you know, in all our investments, and in that return is built in harm and destruction to women, people of color and nature. Mm. And um, we have to make it an internality. It has to be part of the valuation system because it supports our life on this planet. And there's, there is more work than I've ever seen and more progress than I've ever seen um, taking place around this, but we're not there yet. And um, I think we're not talking enough about nature and all it can do for us. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm, fully with you I would be talking about nature all day if we <laughs> could be here um and and then uh, any hopes for COP26 or maybe even COP15 if we're if thinking about nature my hopes for COP26 are that countries come ready to recommit and that the barriers that we have had heretofore um are fully addressed and we are realistic about where we are as a planet and that the leadership we need is there, and then the action that follows it, the implementation, and that means private sector, public sector, nonprofits, everybody's got to do their part. And uh, my hope is that we can see ourselves to keep to 1.5. I really do hope so. Hmm. And then just finally, um, I know that these could be sort of some heavy themes we were talking about today, so just to end on a bit of a lighter note, um, is there anything, what do you do aside from work and everything that you do um, outside of work to support a sustainable planet? Any tips for us that you'd want to share? It's simple, but I really love flowers that are attracting pollinators. Mm. I just, I love bees 
the role. I love the role that they play and it's so important and it's a simple thing. You know, we have a little teeny garden and you can do that. So that's my little, my little piece. Did you see actually the, um, the winner of the Morgan Stanley, um, you know, they, every year they have that sustainable award for an idea and it's the B bank. this year. <gasps> Uh-huh. No, I missed that. Yeah, they How just cool announced, announced that? it recently. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link. Um, Please. And just finally, what's something you've read or seen that's inspired you that we can all sort of take away with us? I am inspired by All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. Uh, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson and uh, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, an oceanographer, a climate scientist, and uh, just wonderful collection, all female um, contributors to this fantastic book about how we can um, see our way through climate change and address it. Highly recommend it. Um, I, I'm also enjoying Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. And it's about a massive heat wave in India, is the opening scene. I highly recommend it. It's cli fi, but it's so close to the bone but still highly recommend it because there's um there's hope at the end uh i'm just gonna stop it clify i had did not even know this was a genre yes it is a genre and then the other term is climate grief and we are working with um a climate psychiatrist who specializes in the trauma of natural disaster and she's from puerto rico and her work with people who went through and, you know, continue to suffer from Hurricane Maria and all that happened. Um, It's really interesting to think about it through that. You know, we were talking about resilience as a part of a human characteristic. Is that about your mental health? Is that about your, um, your ability to manage through crisis? Is it, you know, is it about meditation? Is it about mindfulness? Is, you know, how, how do you uh, manage your mental health as well as your own physical safety and health and, really interesting to learn from a climate psychiatrist how that um, affects us yeah and how um, we get through it and particularly now in covid I mean, so many yes. mental health has been impacted so Oof. oh it's so such inspiring work um yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> and, and some wonderful tips for reading thank you so much kathy <laughs> you bet you bet um, it's been a pleasure having you here and i hope we can have you on again good luck with all your work this year thanks so much for your time thank you helen that's all from us at green is the new finance this week i hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as i did i'll be back next time with my colleague ryan jude but until then please give us a thumbs up on all the usual podcast platforms and as always feel free to reach out to us if there are topics you'd love us to cover see you next time green is the new finance is brought to you by the green finance institute with audio production by fairly media